Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back, everybody. I have covered the American Revolution and its impacts to the various groups of the newly established country. However, this week, I thought I would do a little deeper of a dive into that peculiar institution that plagues so much of America's history, slavery. A shout out to my listener, Federica, who was super interested in the previous episode on slavery, John Punch. If you haven't checked it out already, take a listen. The colonies had just successfully gained their independence from Britain, by arguing that all men were created equal. As I have discussed previously, there were many limitations to the concept of equality for all men. But, nonetheless, it was a political theory and the bedrock to the establishment of a new republic. But what about those held in bondage? How did this concept of freedom and revolution impact their daily lives? While the Civil War is still on the horizon, the revolution did temporarily provide for some different thoughts and approaches to the concept of slavery. How did slavery evolve in the immediate aftermath of the revolution? What prompted the change? And why did it take so long to formally outlaw slavery? All things I hope to cover this week. Grab your coffee peeps. Let's do it. As I discussed in the episode on John Punch, the concept of slavery was not fomented in the early days of the Republic. There was an economic need for large amounts of manual labor, and planters were desperate to fill those needs however they could. African imported labor was costly at the beginning, and therefore, many planters avoided the debt and utilized indentured servants to meet their needs. However, as fewer indentured servants came over and Britain became the mightiest navy, the access to African slave labor was much easier and therefore much more cost-effective. And with slaves came the guarantee of lifelong labor— a switch from the indentured servants. However, in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, there was a distinct shift in the treatment, acceptance, and need of slave labor. This shift provided the stepping stones towards the Civil War just a century later. So what was this shift, and how did it come about? Well, first there was the evolution of political theory. The Founding Fathers, influenced by the writers of the Enlightenment, had discussed the concept of natural rights— or the idea that all men were given certain liberties from birth. The Great Awakening also played a key role in the shifting perceptions of holding other human beings as slaves. This religious revival saw a rise in the level of concern for all souls, slave and non-slave alike. Evangelical Christians espoused concern for the physical treatment of slaves and argued they should be taught to read the Bible in order to save their souls. This concern for their souls and treatment helped society at large oppose the physical mistreatment of slaves, though they still remain quiet on the idea of slavery itself. Taking the political theory one step further, Quakers would be the first to truly and forcefully oppose the institution of slavery, and would begin establishing abolitionist groups in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. Then there is the experience many had during the fight for independence— Serving in the Revolution, many slaves got a sense of what it was like to be free. In an effort to gain troops, New York offered slaves freedom in exchange for three years of service. After the war, black men were able to join society as free men. 
This is not to say African Americans were treated like equal citizens. They were not. However, this freedom allowed black men to establish networks and work towards gaining freedom from many of their counterparts. In 1787, the Free African Society was founded by two former slaves, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Additionally, free black men and women began establishing mutual aid associations that would provide benefits, such as insurance and schools for their children. There is also an economic argument to be made about the shift in ideology. In his book on American slavery, historian Peter Colchin argues the spread of capitalism contributed to questioning the institution of slavery, since slavery did not include the free hire of labor through mutual agreement. Highlighting this argument in the latter part of the 18th century, the South experienced a failure of the tobacco crop. This crop crisis led to a high number of excess hands on plantations. As a result, some plantation owners granted freedom to their slaves, and some were allowed to perform odd jobs, such as gardening, and given the opportunity to make their own money and, for some, purchase their freedom. All of these factors led the framers to assess the viability of human bondage and the best way to address it while developing a new nation. In the immediate aftermath of the Revolution, the Founding Fathers sought to tackle the idea of slavery, however quickly realized it would be a dividing topic between the North and the South. But why? Slavery had been allowed and pervasive throughout all of the colonies. However, plantations and an agriculturally-based economy was more prevalent in the South. The northern colonies were not dependent on imported labor, and therefore it was easier for them to imagine an economy without slaves than it was for their southern counterparts. There was some attempt to address slavery when the framers convened to write the new constitution. Thomas Jefferson proposed legislation limiting the geographic spread of slavery by banning it in the Western territories after 1800. It lost by one vote. Seeing the very real divide over slavery and wanting to achieve consensus on the new government, the framers at the Constitutional Convention decided to kick the discussion about what to do about bondage down the road for 20 years. While it wasn't addressed in the Constitution, Congress managed to chip away at slavery in small but tangible ways. In 1794, the Slave Trade Act prohibited American ships from participating in the international trafficking of slaves. This was followed by the act prohibiting the importation of slaves, passed in 1807, outlawing the importation of slave labor. The law went into effect on January 1, 1808. In response to the ban on importation, plantation owners of the Lower South, who still relied on the benefits of slave labor, worked to import high levels of Africans to serve in bondage. Between 1787 and 1807, more slaves were imported into the country than any other two decades in United States history. Deciding what to do with the slaves who were already here was left up to the individual states to decide. Beginning in the 1780s, states worked towards making private manumissions easier, and the North led the way in dismantling the institution by outlawing slavery in their various state constitutions with Vermont leading the charge outlawing human bondage for anyone over the age of 21 in their state constitution in 1777. This was followed in 1780 with the passage of the Massachusetts Constitution and a series of court cases seen as the catalyst to legally ban the institution within the state's borders. The first is the Mumbet case, brought in 1781, which aimed at challenging slavery directly, as opposed to an individual master, for violating a law. In Bett's case, lawyers acting on her behalf wrote a writ of replevin ordering Bett's master, John Ashley, to release her and another slave known as Brom. 
When Ashley refused, the case was taken to the County Court of Common Pleas, where the attorneys argued the Massachusetts Constitution had outlawed slavery by including the verbiage, all men are born free and equal, and have the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties. The jury hearing the case agreed and ordered Ashley to free Bet and Brom and awarded them 30 shillings for damages. The second case, known as the Quack Walker case, was actually three cases that would lead to the Massachusetts Supreme Court finding slavery as an institution incompatible with the constitution of the state. Quack Walker, a slave, lived in Massachusetts as the property of James Caldwell. When Caldwell died, his widow remarried, and Walker's ownership was transferred to her new spouse, Nathaniel Jennison. At 28, Walker fled his bond and escaped to the home of his former master's sons. Jennison tracked Walker down, beat him, and brought him back to be re-enslaved. Walker then sued Jennison for assault and battery, claiming he had been assaulted without cause and should be free, having been promised manumission by his former owner at the age of 25. Jennison also sued, but his suit was directed at the Caldwell sons and not Walker, who he accused of enticing Walker to flee. Walker would win his case against Jennison and gain his freedom and an award for damages, but Jennison would win his case against the Caldwell brothers and was awarded £25 for damages. Both sides appealed their decisions. All of this came to a head when the Attorney General of Massachusetts prosecuted Jennison for criminal assault and battery. Addressing the jury hearing the case, Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice William Cushing stated, quote, In short, without resorting to implication in constructing the Constitution, slavery is in my judgment as effectively abolished as it can be by granting the rights and privileges wholly incompatible and repugnant to its existence. The court are therefore fully of the opinion that perpetual servitude can no longer be tolerated in our government, and that liberty can only be forfeited by some criminal conduct or relinquished by personal consent or contract. And it is therefore unnecessary to consider whether the promises of freedom to Quaco on the part of his master and mistress amounted to a manumission or not. End quote. This seemed to convince the jury, and Jennison was convicted. When not covered in their constitutions, states passed laws providing for freedom of future generations of slaves after they reached a certain age. However, it would be a gradual and painful process to abolish the institution outright, paving the way for a civil war in 1861. These progressive laws abolishing slavery helped increase the population of free Black Americans from 60,000 in 1790 to 186,000 by 1810. However, the freedom of Black bodies would push Southern states to find another reason to legitimize slavery. After the American Revolution, the concept of all men being created equal quickly gave way to a new form of racism to make the arguments that blacks were inferior and therefore deserved to be enslaved. Ultimately, the federal government would delay the outlawing of slavery in an effort to placate the southern states and prevent their succession from the Union. This failure to act would allow the concept of racial inequity to spread throughout the country and would have long-lasting implications beyond the Civil War in 1861. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm -hmm.